welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. live 
right? And so every morning on Saturday morning, if I didn't have some sort of sports event, I'd wake up as a kid and get my bowl of Lucky Charms and sit down and we would watch this, what they called Saturday morning cartoon entertainment light up. It was a big deal, right? And it was a lot of indoctrination, right? And, and like commercialization and that kind of thing. But this, the, the cartoons were awesome. And a lot of my theology came from cartoons. Like, I remember one day, I was at church, and we came back, and I listened to, we were in Sunday school, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like where kids get taught, and I came out of Sunday school one day, and I asked my dad, like, the teacher was talking about heaven, and it didn't look like what I've seen on Saturday morning, and he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, it seems like in cartoons, every time somebody dies, they end up on a cloud with a heart floating, Right? And I told my dad, like, if that's heaven, I don't really want to go. Because I don't like harp music. If you play the harp, I'm sorry. It's not my favorite. And I don't really like to sit still. So the idea that for eternity I would be floating around on a cloud playing a harp was horrific to me. And I'm like, if that's what it looks like, then I don't want to go. The other thing that I saw in cartoon theology is constantly there was this image of conflict going on in the characters of cartoons where like an angel would pop up on one shoulder and the demon would pop up on the other. Have you guys seen this? Um, Emperor's New Groove, which is actually a little bit more modern, has that, right? And so there was this like conflict that would go on. And as a kid, that's the way that I thought things worked. I remember like... This is so silly, but I remember being a kid and like trying to make a decision on something that I knew I wasn't going to do, and I'm sitting there looking for the angel and the demon to show up on my shoulder, because all of my theology, now I call it cartoon theology, you should write a book, all of my theology came from Saturday morning cartoons, right? And I think that one of the things that has impacted our culture from that kind of theological understanding is this desire to have excuse for everything that we do instead of take responsibility for who we are. And I think what I've realized is that the cartoon theology that I had as a kid, that's what it was attempting to do. It was really saying, listen, it's not really your fault. Like, there's this influence over you and there's always somebody that you can push the blame off to, and we'll just say that the problem's your shoulder demon, or your shoulder little devil, right? And so I remember as I grew up thinking this way, and then I read passages of scripture like this in James, and I'm like, okay, it's not right. There's conflicts that go on inside of us all the time. The reason that I've determined that we don't resolve these conflicts is we're constantly looking for who to blame instead of really evaluating our hearts. And so this is where James is going to take us today. He begins this passage in chapter 4, verse 1, with this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a good question. Like, you might be able to answer a whole lot of different reasons, right? Like, what causes quarrels among you? Well, it's this person, it's that person. It's very rare that I'll find an individual who goes, man, I seem to be fighting with my spouse, or I seem to be fighting with my friends all the time, and it's my fault, always. It's typically, there's always conflict, and it's the other person. Like, I'm the one that's right. We've been watching, we went through the Indiana Jones series, because the new one's coming out. I don't know if you guys are excited about that, like, geek out on that stuff. And I was, there was this, uh, this moment in one of the 
times where there's this conflict happening and um, the young Indiana Joe Livingston last crusade gets lost and everybody's looking for him and his response is everybody's lost but me right like everybody's missing I'm the one that's that's that understands exactly where I'm supposed to be and, and how I'm supposed to be here and I thought man that is so realistic that's how we function as human beings we're constantly going, well, I'm the one that's right. I'm the one that's not causing the problems everyone else is. And so this question is pertinent. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he's going to answer it, and then we're going to kind of dive into how we resolve this problem. His answer is this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He doesn't say, the reason that you're constantly in conflict is because you're surrounded by a bunch of people who don't get it. He says, you got to look internally. The reason you're constantly in conflict is because there's, there's something going on inside of you that we need to take ownership of. And he says here, it's these passions. This word passion is fascinating. It's not what you think. Like, I think a lot of times when we look at the word passion from kind of an American sense, we'll say, one, it could have something to do with like sensuality. Obviously, that's not the case here. It can, uh, when we say passion, it's like, well, I'm really passionate about something, meaning I have excitement around it, I have energy around it. We'll ask each other, like, well, what are you most passionate about? Because that's what you should pour your life into. Once again, I think if we try to put that into this context, we're going to have a really hard time understanding what James is actually trying to get across here. This word, passions, used here in this context, its original understanding and language is really about the idea of being so emotional about something that you actually lose control of those emotions. Where internally you're, you're all churned up. There's, there's something that maybe has upset you or there's something that has frustrated you or there's something that even can excite you and it gets so bubbled up that you have an inability to actually control your emotions outwardly, inwardly. It keeps you up at night. You're worried about it or you're excited about it. So I remember as a kid, um, we used to go to Disneyland a lot. I'm from Southern California. And when I was young, every time the, the night before we would go, I wouldn't sleep. Right? Because I was so excited. And my aunt would usually take me and we were all in the same hotel room. And so because I didn't sleep, nobody slept. Right? And so um, I remember, like, why was I not sleeping? Because I just couldn't wait to get there. I was so overwhelmingly excited about what was coming. That word would fit here. It actually became a destructive process because the excitement that was going on inside of me, even though it would be considered maybe positive from the aspect that it's an excited feeling, it was. I was unable to control my emotions, and it impacted me physically to where I couldn't sleep. So the next day, when we go to Disneyland, I was like, I'm tired, and I'm four, and I need coffee, right? But it, you know, I, that's a pretty simple example. I think there's a lot of things that we'll see that go on in the world that might get kind of our blood churning, and we have this thing that happens inside of us that just boils up, or maybe somebody has said something that's created anger, or we've seen something that's caused frustration, or, you know, I, I haven't, I don't, when I was growing up, I never really got in any fights, like, like fist fights, I wasn't, I'm not much of a fighter, 
the only advice that I really ever got in when I saw somebody being abused and I felt like I needed to step in and protect the person. And so that, that was kind of my fighting. And I remember, like, I always tried to talk myself or talk the situation down even when I was younger. But there was something when I saw somebody being abused or somebody being mistreated. And it could be a person, it could be an animal, it could be anything. Something inside of me would boil up, and I couldn't control it. And then the passion, according to this word that came out of me, was uncontrollable. I remember stepping into a situation when I was in high school where I actually walked into, I was at a party, shouldn't have been at, and I walked into a room where a a girl that I knew was actually being molested. And I stepped in, and I was so angry, and afterward, I remember stepping back and looking at what I'd done to this kid, and thought, I can't believe that that was even in me, because the passion had just taken control. That's what he's referring to here. We all have these moments where logic just gets pushed out the window, where everything that's going on inside of you is just aching for you to do something that maybe you shouldn't be doing. And and he would refer to this as this conflict. As we know he's talking to the church, there's, there's these passions that well up inside of us that the first thing we don't think of is, oh, I need to gospel myself in this. The first thing that comes out of us is this uncontrollable desire to do something. There's moments, if you've been a Christ follower very long, where you've had moments like that and you've done it correctly, where maybe when you've stopped and you've prayed and you've asked the Lord to kind of watch over, like, okay, Lord, like, that's up to me. This person's going to be hurting. So you're going to have to calm me down here. But then there's other times where we all know we've given in to these passions. And what he's going to argue through this is that those internal struggles that are constantly going on because we don't control those passions are eventually going to lead to external issues, just like I've described. So he keeps going after he's answered this question. What does he say? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Hopefully you've not done that. I don't think that even when I studied this word, I don't I don't think that it's specifically referring to like you actually committed murder, but how many people do you look at them, you desire, you get angry, whatever, and in your heart you just absolutely murdered them. One of the things I've learned about the human condition and our own sinful nature is that we often get excited when people fail. something in our culture, like if you just look at the gossip circuit or the entertainment that goes on on TV, whatever it is, the, the harder somebody is being degraded, the more the ratings seem to go up. There's something in us that longs for this viewing of the suffering of other people. And I don't know that if it, if it just... It helps relieve our own suffering internally. I don't know if it's just, you know, we're, we're scared to do something. And so we would, instead of pushing for, you know, our own success, we would just rather cheer the failure of others. I don't know what it is. But we murder people all the time. 
those who murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Jealous of this person because they have what I want. A song came on the other day, like I love music, and if you know me, anytime we're in the car, we're going to be rocking out, anytime, like whatever, right? And this song came on that I know, I've been listening to my whole life, and it's called Jesse's Girl. You know this song? Have you ever listened to the words of that song? It's crazy. Like, I was singing it, and I was like, whoa, what am I singing? I wish I had Jesse's Girl, right? Like, like I'm thinking, well, I wonder what the action was after that. Like, he's been singing for a while that he wishes he had Jesse's Girl because he wants what Jesse has. And then I'm thinking, I wonder if that motivated him to actually do something about it. I wonder what that looked like. Like, as he's murdering Jesse in his heart, right? Like, we sing stuff like that. We pray stuff like that. We watch stuff like that. It doesn't even feel unnatural because it's so much of who we are. Isn't that fascinating? Like, I'll go see a movie, right? And, and in front of us, we'll have thousands of people slaughtered for our entertainment. War movie, whatever it is. And then we're getting on, that was the greatest movie. And if you really thought about it, you'd be like, whoa. I just watched genocide, and I'm applauding it. But we're so immune to it. We, we covet almost other people's misery and torture, and then we, we call it entertainment because our hearts are so connected to it. And we become so numb to those types of things that we don't even process them anymore. And I think that's what James is trying to get here. Saying, look, like, there's stuff that's going on around you. There's stuff that's happening in culture. There's influences that are coming your way. Are you even, are your eyes really even open? He takes it spiritual on us. And I thought this was fascinating. He says, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I, I spent a lot of time in those two sentences this week just processing. I mean, obviously, from contextual, understanding the context, he was talking about prayer. Right? And prayer is one of the most mysterious things on the planet. I, so many questions get asked. I'm like, what should I pray for? What can I pray for? What shouldn't I pray for? And all of those tensions that we feel around prayer, and I, I think he's kind of wrapping them up here, right? So he begins with saying, you don't have because you don't ask. And I'm like, okay, Kevin, just pick on me for a minute. Like, what are the things I don't ask for? Like when I'm, when I'm praying to the Lord, what are the things I don't ask for according to the context of this? Do you know what I don't ask for? I don't ask for the things that I'm ashamed to ask for. Like he's coming out of this idea of saying you're, you don't have, so you murder, you don't, you're going to covet, and you, you cause all these issues. And then he says, those are not things that you're going to pray for because you already know that internally that would reveal to your own heart what's truly going on. That's intense to think about. 
And think about the conflicts that go on inside of you, the way that you maybe feel about some person, or like, even if you wanted, if you're so angry at someone and you're like, I have murdered this person in my heart a hundred times, you would never go, Lord, would you just wipe them off the face of the planet out loud? Why? Well, maybe you would. But why don't we do that? When those passions boil up and we're feeling those things, why don't we just... I mean, I told you that story about me stepping into this situation. Like, why didn't I pray, Lord, Lord, just just let me kill this guy for what he's done. He deserves it. Oftentimes, I think we don't bring things to the Lord because we feel guilty about the emotions that are behind them. We feel guilty about the desires that are truly going on in our hearts. And even those we feel them, well, basically, it's kind of like saying, well, I know I'm feeling this, and I know that it's in my heart, and I know that I'm struggling with it, but I don't really want to reveal it to the Lord because maybe I can just hide it from Him. That's real. Prayer is interesting. I, I've been, I've been praying with people before, and I know like things that are going on in their life, and maybe struggles that they have, and we've talked about it, and we'll get into these moments of prayer and it's like all of a sudden they change. Like there's no realness to it. It's it's as if prayer has been taught to them and it's regurgitated instead of actually like a spoken from the heart. Like what would it look like if you actually as a Christ follower revealed truly what you were going through internally to your father? I mean it says since you know the gospel helps everything. Why do we fake it? I I haven't even seen it so bad where it's like people will actually change their voice while they pray. And I'm like, it's like they have a prayer voice. spoke in some sort of weird accent when he prayed. And he never had an accent. And I was like, dude, what, what, what's going on here? Like, are we in a position, like, is our God so small that we think we can hide the emotions and the things that are going on inside, keep them from Him, and then believe that we can handle them without taking them to Him? Is our God so small that we don't think that He can handle our problems, our issues? But then there's a fear, right? There's a fear of saying, I don't want to reveal this out loud because it's going on internally and I know it's not supposed to be happening. I shouldn't be battling this. I shouldn't be having this this emotion, this passion, how we've defined it. So I'm not going to take it to the Lord because I don't want to admit it to myself. And if I admit it out loud, then I'm going to have to own it. And if I have to own it, then I know that I'm going to have to trust that the Lord's going to gospel me, which is going to have to change me. I don't ever know that I can handle more change, or that I want more change, or that I really want to get over this passion. You ever hated something so much you just wanted to hate it for the rest of your life? But what if, maybe I just to stop here if I'm not, stop here and say, what in your heart 
praise of the Lord. Can you imagine what it would look like if churches did that? Can you imagine the freedom? thing he says about prayer is he says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Lord, can I learn the lottery? I need a vacation. Lord, can you give me the Mercedes instead of the Kia? I mean, that's basic. And when we're looking at passions, it gets a little bit more difficult. There's a misinterpretation here to believe that if we ask in a specific way, like prayer is like this magic thing, and we, we pray with enough faith, and we pray with enough urgency that whatever we ask is going to be answered, and obviously that's not good doctrine. There's some churches out there that will tell you that. Oh, you're not wealthy and you're not healthy because you just don't have enough faith. You just have more faith. Send more money, right? But the reality is this: it's. I mean, I, I, every time I, I hear that, I think of the passage in John 15 where Jesus talks about abiding in Him, right? And and how the the branch that's not attached to the vine won't last, and and how that has to be this picture of how we depend upon Christ that we're abiding in Him, that we're attached to Him at all times, and the the life that we have is emanating from Him, and our desires come from Him. And then He says, if you're abiding in Me, if My words are in you, then ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. And what is He saying? He's saying, if you're abiding in Christ, then what you're going to find is your prayer life's going to change a little bit, because you're actually going to be asking for the things that He wants you to ask for. And then, of course, He's going to give them to you. Right? It's like, I remember growing up, and I would be, you know, so yard work for me was punishment as a kid. This was a fatal flaw in my dad's strategy, because I married a woman who has a green thumb and desires to do stuff around the yard all the time, and I like working alongside of her, but when we first got married, I was like, Like, there was something innately built in me where I was like, every time I walked outside to do yard work, I felt my dad going, you're having to do this. This isn't enjoyable. You have to do this, right? And so I remember as a kid, like, I would get in trouble, and he'd be like, you're weeding all day, right? And now Christy's like, let's go weed for fun. (laughs) I've gotten better. Um, (laughs) Why did I say that? So... This was kind of stuck in me. There was this this thing where it, it was, you know, it was a punishment, and it was hard to get over, and and there was changes, and, and so on and so forth. But I, there's these things that that are inside of us that are constantly pushing us. questioning us in our motivation and why we want something 
that we'll find ourselves beginning to pray that the Lord will provide in a way that we desire Him to provide and that wouldn't necessarily bring glory to Him. I'm speaking my words carefully here because I don't want any misunderstanding. So think of it this way, my gardening analogy, like, can you imagine me being a little kid and my dad wants the lawn mowed? And I walk up to him and I'm like, Dad, can I mow the lawn today? What's he going to say? Yeah. Please. Like, I don't want to do it. I mean, I'm assuming the reason he passed it on as punishment to me is because it was punishment to him. That's what we do as lawnmowers. Right? So, if I walked up to him, like, can I mow the lawn? Can I weed the garden today? He'd be like, yes, weed the garden. Go. Be filled, my son. Right? Imagine if your prayer life was dictated around what Jesus wants to give you anyway. Lord, I have a heart to see my neighbors come to Jesus. Can you give me the grace to be bold enough to live a life that would represent you and speak truth when you provide me opportunity? Is that a prayer that he's willing to respond to? Absolutely. He's be like, hey, Michael, Angel, come here. Look at my boy. He's asking for things that I want him to ask for. But see, that, that isn't typically how our prayer life works. Why? Because there's so much internal struggle. We focus so much on the things that maybe we don't have. And oftentimes those things are grounded in such selfishness and desire for comfort. And the American dream, I was talking to a homeless guy yesterday, and he doesn't know me for anything. And we met him outside of State Street Coffee House, and, I'm, and we, we, I took, we took him in, Chris took him in, and got him some food and, a, and got hot chocolate. And he sat down, and she had a conversation with him, I had a conversation with him, and he's like, you're living the American dream. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope not. Because I'm not. perception was that, and I thought, why, why is he thinking that? And the reason that he's thinking that is because he's going, you're smiling, you're happy. He even said this, like, you seem to have joy in your life, so it has to have come from, like, obtaining stuff. And I'm like, I get it now. Can we talk about Jesus? But it, as I thought about that conversation from yesterday, I thought, well, yeah, my heart does do that. How do I define success? Oftentimes we'll define success based upon how blessed we feel. Last week, if you remember, we talked about arguing with the Lord. I, I argue with the Lord quite a bit. There's certain things that I tend to argue with Him about. Some, I believe, are justified by my own right, and He's like, you can keep wrestling, but you're never going to win. Other things are just ridiculous. And the reality is, what I really want God to be is a servant. I think that, and I'll just blame whatever, like background, or I, don't, I don't know, like sinful nature, say, there's something innate inside of me, I'm sure it's not in you guys, right? 
to say, I want what I want when I want it, how I want it, exactly the timing that I want. God, I don't want to be patient. If you're really God, then you need to show up in the way that I'm desiring you to show up and do exactly what I want you to do. And then, I don't know about you guys, but I'll have these moments where I'm like, okay, here's my deadline. God, you've got to show up at this time. And I've realized in my prayer life that he never does that. And I think he does it despite me. Like in a good way. Like how dare you tell me what you think you need or how I'm going to function. This isn't about you. You're a created being. I'm sovereign. And the created beings go, but we're so awesome. There's something in the church where sometimes I feel like we look at God in the face and say, you're so lucky to have me? Did you see what I did for you yesterday? Did you see how I handled that homeless guy? What are you going to do for him? Where's the blessing? Saying the reason that we don't see a lot of power sometimes in our prayer life because those passions that are internal and eventually become external actually flow out of our mouth and our prayer life and then God doesn't answer them because we're asking for the wrong reasons and then because of who we are we blame God. And I've even gotten to the point where I've had people go, I don't even know if God exists because he never answers my prayer. I'm like, what are you praying? some things I think that go on inside of us as Christ followers where we go there's, there's accuracy to this you know, we, we, we tie it up into a theological ball of saying our own depravity, it's fancy for saying that we sin all the time, you'll hear me say all the time we're just a bunch of dirty rotten sinners right but he's going to push it a little harder because I, I think that I think that here's another American tendency or a human tendency. We get convicted of stuff like this. We look at our prayer life. We'll evaluate everything that we just talked about and where James is bringing us. And then we go, shoot, I keep making the same mistake over and over and over. And James is going to go, we're going to stop calling it a mistake. So it goes deeper. And here comes the mirror. mistake. You adulterous people. I find it fascinating. You know he's talking to the church. This letter's written to the church, so he doesn't use the word fornication. You fornicating people. Right? He says, you adulterous people. Why does he use the word adultery to describe all of this? Because we're, as Christ followers, supposed to be married to Jesus. And he's saying, cheating on me. In the Old 
Testament being flat out just called it whoring yourself out. Adultery. You adulterous people. These passions that you're constantly pursuing. These internal battles that are going on. All the excuses that you give. Your unrelenting definition of things just being a mistake. Instead of really grasping how the Lord sees it. Well, I've come to the conclusion the reason I still have so much sin in my life is because I just don't hate it enough. And I don't hate it enough because I don't call it adultery. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are strong words. Adultery? So, I mean, James is like, listen, if this is how we're going to keep functioning, we have to understand that we're being viewed as adulterous enemies. Enemy of God. That scares me a little bit. Sharks. God made snakes. Creeps me out a little bit. Right? Like the same God that made the rabbit that hops is the same God that made the great white shark. Some of you are like, I like swimming with sharks. I'm like, that's because you're sinful (laughs) and foolish. What James is trying to help us understand as a church is. When we're constantly walking in this line of trying to stay in the world and abide by the world's passions and the world's pleasures that we desire, these passions that he referred to that have come from the world, and at the same time walk a line of saying that we're Christ followers, it doesn't work. It's as if we're saying this. This, I, I was sharing my testimony with somebody not too long ago, and I, I brought this up, but there were some moments in my life where there were certain realizations that take place, and so this had to do with like what I felt like my call to full-time ministry. But one of my realizations came that my life had been grounded in this idea of knowing who Jesus was, and that I had accepted a gift of eternity with Him. And eternity is a long time. But I refuse to give him the 50 years I have left. It doesn't make sense. It seems like it would be harder to trust somebody for eternity than for 50 years. But that's what we do. We say, I want fire insurance. I give it a choice between heaven or hell. You'd have to be a fool to say, oh, well, even if hell looks like that and heaven looks like that, I'm going to take heaven because I don't want that. So sign me up for the insurance so that when it all hits the fan, I'm good to go and I can show my certificate. Get my dues. It's weird. It's a weird concept to think that we would actually give our lives to Jesus for eternity and say eternity's good 
tomorrow? What's tomorrow's probably Wednesday afternoon? Why do we think that way? You can handle my eternity, but you can't handle tomorrow? You can handle my eternity, but you can't handle the fears that are going on inside of me? says, that's not gospel. Jesus said, I've, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. The way that he, the way that that's written in scripture is in the, the present perfect tense. It's beginning at the moment of your salvation. You are to live a life that's abundant through eternity in Christ. Meaning it begins now. The problem is we define abundant the way that we want to instead of the way that he does. And then when he doesn't match our expectations of what abundant is, then we say, oh, eternity's good now, tomorrow. And James would say, that's the behavior of an adulterer who's married but is seeking some kind of pleasure elsewhere. That's the behavior of an enemy who says one thing to your face, but behind you does something different. Strong words. What's the solution? says what's real. But he doesn't leave us alone. Kind of get to this moment where as Christ followers we think about what's going on in our life. We think about those passions. We think about the things that we've done. We think about yesterday. We think about how little we're willing to commit actually to Jesus. We, you'll hear me every week I have said to you guys for probably the last year and a half that all sanctification is is understanding where the gospel isn't currently being applied in your life and allowing Jesus access to that. But we have to identify those areas, and that's this is what James is attempting to do. To soften a hair just so it's palatable so we can actually taste it. James is literally saying, listen. There are areas of your life where the gospel is not being currently applied, yet you're claiming that Jesus can do anything. So why are you trusting in you instead of him in that specific area? How do we get Jesus applied there? How do you allow him to gospel you in those areas? And what I have found in my experience in my 48 years, which isn't that old, but old, it changes. It is never ending. And I'll be like, oh, this area. Okay, Lord, I'm just going to say it out loud. Here it is. This is where I'm at. And I'm inviting you to gospel me here. And he says, okay, here we go. And it's hard. And it hurts. And it's painful. And I don't like what I see in the mirror. But over time, 
has been going sin, things in their life, and the Lord has removed them and gospeled them, and it's no longer a problem. But then the next one shows up. And it's this constant evaluation. Where am I not being gospeled? Where am I not applying it? So he says, listen, these are, these are supposed to be words of comfort even though they're intense. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is beautiful. There used to, I, I think, is Oprah Winfrey still around? bring up individuals and sermons, but I remember this as a kid, Oprah Winfrey, at one point, she had created her religion, and the leader of the religion was a guy named Eckhart Tolle, and he was a weird dude, and uh, I remember an interview that I was watching, and and she said, I, I realized that I needed to deny Christ when I read the verse that, that God is jealous and she went, God's jealous of me? That means I'm better than him. That's not what's being said here. God's jealous for you. The misunderstanding and the constant misperception of how much the Lord paid to have a relationship with you. That Jesus would come and live the life that I was supposed to live, that in itself is unreal, unthinkable. And he lived perfect. He, what I'm saying, you've got to personalize the gospel to a point where you have to literally see Jesus living the life that you were supposed to live. sin, Satan, and death forever. And then he literally says, you can have the work that I've done and you'll also be adopted in my family and have a relationship with me. And it's costing you everything. And then he turns around and he says, the freedom that I now give you, I'm asking you to love me so much and understand the sacrifice of your salvation that you in turn voluntarily choose to be my slave. Or what scripture calls a bondservant. God goes through extremes just because he wants to be with you. I don't understand that. It's like, <laughs> I remember in high school, and there was this like person that I was interested in, and I asked her out, and she was like, yeah, I'll go out with you. And I looked at her like, I'm going to re-ask the question, because there's no way, right? And it was almost like, I'm like, why? You don't ask that. You just jump on and go, right? Yes. 
here's why. The creator of the universe sent his son to die for you, offers you eternal life with him, the ability to be in his family, the ability to continue to have an abundant life, to be sanctified in him, to become more and more like him. And we get hung up on the why. If you're here today and one of your biggest issues with the idea of Christianity is that you think that God is this cosmic being who's just waiting for you to mess up and create a bunch of rules for you to follow, you've missed it. And I will tell you this, if your perception of that is because we as the church continually fail to show you Jesus correctly, then please forgive us for that. Don't allow our misperceptions and sin to corrupt your view of who God truly is. That He truly loves you. Because He does. You have the opportunity that every philosopher through all of the ages have asked, why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the purpose? What am I doing here? And Jesus says, it's simple. You're here to bring glory to Jesus. You're here to know your Creator. You're invited into Trinitarian perfect unity. but he gives more grace. Even in the midst of all our failures and all our excuses, he continues to pour more grace. And then he provides the ultimate answer. Are you ready? This is it. This is the golden moment. This is the nugget. This is what James is saying I've been building up to. gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He'll give you more grace. Meaning, he will continue to give you what we don't deserve. He will continue to pour his grace upon us if we come to him with a humble, contrite heart instead of a proud heart. Instead of this idea that you owe us and you need to do it my way, we come to him and say, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner who doesn't deserve anything, and yet here I am, knowing the creator of the world. You died for me. You offer me new life. So, Lord, empty me of myself in every way possible and fill me with your spirit. Give me the grace to live the life that you know is better for me because you created me. 
help me get out of the way. This means that as Christ followers, our, our need is to have lives that are defined by repentance and penitence and humility. To know who it is that we're actually dealing with. And then step back in joy and say, I can't believe that he's pouring grace upon me. I'm a messed up, dirty, rotten sinner who's been given the hope of eternal life and a hope of life in Christ. And I still continue to blow it because of all this junk that we just went over. And yet more grace comes if I'm humble in it. What's the answer? got to stop thinking we're so great. We've got to say Jesus is. We just sang it. One of my biggest things about singing worship songs is we're constantly singing things that we don't actually do. Great are you, God. Really? Was he great in your life this week? He can be. back to this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, this is where it begins. It comes from a contrite heart. It comes from understanding that everything that you have attempted to do, the reason it's not working, the reason there's still something missing here is because it's not about you, it's about Him. But in order to have a Savior, you have to first understand that you need one. So if that's you, I invite you. Like, There's something pulling here that's like, oh, I keep trying to do this on my own. This is who I am. I need an answer. What you need is Jesus. And you can do that today. We're going to do something religious here in a moment where we take communion together as a church. And if you don't know Jesus, this is my thing for you. Don't take communion. There's no shame in it. I don't want you leaving here with a false hope. But if you're here and you're like, respond in some way. Here's the best response you could give. You can come talk to me if you want, but you don't have to. Turn to the person next to you. Say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we have a conversation? I have questions. Don't leave here without knowing Jesus. But ultimately for the church, this is for us. What needs to change? We take communion here every week as an opportunity for us to respond, to be reminded that the only change that can possibly take place in us it's at the foot of the cross. And today, we need to become humble and contrite and be reminded of what Jesus has done so that more grace comes. So here's what we're going to do. The, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. The communion elements are here and here. You have the opportunity to partake whatever you desire. But I'm going to challenge you. Process. Process it. Like, what is the Holy Spirit actually saying to you? Process your week. Process your yesterday. Does this reflect you? Is God really great in your life? And if not, why not? What needs to change? James constantly reminds us that the picture we see in the mirror can always change in Christ. The question is, are we willing to allow him to do the work? Father, we thank you for your word. 